0: I will now be reading from the Bible, and the the reading can be found in your news sheet. So you're welcome to use your Bibles and tablets and phones, but it's in your news sheet. And you can scribble on it and make comments. So reading from John's Gospel, chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to them, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone jars, sorry, stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, "'Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet.' "'They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water "'that had been turned into wine. "'He did not realise where it had come from, "'though the servants who had drawn the water knew. "'Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, "'Everyone brings out the choice, wine first.' and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the the best to last. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples, There they stayed for a few days. Thanks,
1: Denise. Good morning, everyone. Special welcome to you if you're a visitor with us. My name is Tim. It's great to have you here as we go through our Jesus Brings series, and we're looking at the Gospel of John. So if you open that up, have that open, and as Denise said, it's in the handout. So, Mary, you hear her words, There's no more wine. She's clearly panicked because more than Matt Stubb's party office party in Sydney, a Jewish wedding to run out when you're the host is a massive, massive deal. I'm not minimising yours, I'm just saying this is bigger. (laughs) So you can hear the panic in her voice where somehow she's invested in this wedding. Maybe she's closely related, like family, but she can just see... What this means for her, people associated with her in her community. She is about to lose face. Other people are about to lose face. They are going to be shamed. They're they're going to be the people that hosted a wedding but then ran out of wine. What will other people say? Everyone will be snickering. They're going to be, they might be a family who... Thought, well, you know, this is a big wedding, let's 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 go into big debt to try and make sure that we look good. And they've still run out of wine. What are they going to do? They're going to be known as the poor family. There could be all sorts of different things going on, but she is panicked because she is feeling that horrible feeling that we've all felt. It's an insidious feeling. It's shame. Shame is when your standing or acceptance before other people is affected. That's the feeling of shame. It can be before God and it can be before a community. It's your standing or, and your acceptance before God or that community is what brings forth shame. Let me try and come up with some words well I've come up with some words that I think help us understand this feeling of shame when when we're feeling shame this is what's going on so outsider so if we're thinking about the feeling of shame the word outsider you feel when you feel shame that you do not belong to a group you feel like others don't think you're worthy to be part of that group and you feel inferior. When when you feel those things, that's shame. Shame is being an outsider. You don't belong. Here's another word that I think gets us close to what shame is. Naked. So not only do you feel like you don't belong, but you feel naked before people. There's there's something vulnerable that everyone can see and that is the reason why you don't belong, you feel exposed. You don't belong, you're an outsider, you feel naked. Whatever it is that people can see that's on full view, it's not pretty. What about this word, dirty? Whatever can be seen is exposed, it's dirty, it's yucky, you feel contaminated, maybe even contagious. So think about for yourself, where, where are the places in your life, we've all got them, where you do feel like you don't belong, or you feel like if, if this was known about me, if I was made vulnerable, would I be accepted anymore? They're the parts of our life where we feel dirty. I think shame is a little bit different to guilt. So let's just press in on exactly what shame is. Guilt, in contrast to shame, is when you know that you've done something wrong. But you might know that you've done something wrong, but not necessarily feel shame. So for example, you know, a lot of us here are Christians, and we will kind of, we hear ourselves talking like this, we casually kind of go, yeah, I tell a few white lies, and yeah, I, I gossip, but we're kind of okay with it. No one's feeling ostracized or different when we admit those things. We're all putting our hands up and saying we're guilty, but we're not feeling shame. So shame is, can follow on from guilt where you suddenly go, because of my guilt, I now feel like I'm outside, I'm naked, and I'm dirty. Can you see the difference? There's a slight difference. Guilt is is knowing that you've done wrong, but you may or may not feel shame. Now, before God, the Bible tells us that we're all guilty and should feel shame. It will even say that we are shameful. But not all of us feel ashamed before God. The Bible affirms that there will be a day, whether you feel shame now or not, where all of us will stand before God and it will be on full view. On that day, all of us, for whatever we've done, we will feel naked, exposed and dirty. So if we don't feel it now, even though we've done wrong things, there is a day where that will happen. And on that day, we will realise we are not accepted and we don't belong. So that's the difference. Shame can follow on from guilt but it is something a little different. It's also different to embarrassment. So let me tell you a story about when I personally was embarrassed very recently, a couple of months ago. So I was with my lovely wife and her birthday was coming up and we talked about buying her a bracelet. And so we went into Goldmark around Valentine's Day. We weren't in there for Valentine's Day. But there was a sale on, they had all the purple stuff for Valentine's Day around their store and they were saying that there was a discount. And we had this lovely experience where looking and I'm saying, that's lovely, let's try that on, that looks nice. And the attendant, another lady is standing there and she's saying, well, that looks lovely as well. She would say that. And I'm going, yes, it does look, oh yes, i try this one, that's beautiful. Anyway, so she, she may have been thinking, what a lovely husband, you know, sitting there, walking through with his wife, really figuring out what they want. And so we decided on what necklace we would get, our uh, bracelet we would get, and it would match a necklace. And so Deb goes, oh, I'll just have a look around while you pay for it. So I go up to the counter. Now, remember, this is Valentine's Day, and so there's all this paraphernalia around. Because I had got the transaction ready, I then started to relax, and I'm thinking, Valentine's Day, does, it, does anyone really do that anymore? Do they? Do stores really make much of it? I'd kind of heard that Valentine's Day was dying. So as I'm getting out my credit card, I say to the lady, i lean over, so, did you get any action on Valentine's Day? <laughs> and I, I saw Deb swing around <laughs> and then it dawned on me what I'd actually said. Now, I she was Deb was awkward she went purple like the same signs I went purple the lady attendant went purple no one knew what to say I felt really embarrassed like really embarrassed that I couldn't even sort of correct myself I just thought oh she thinks I'm a creep she thinks we're one of those couples (laughs) it it was really awkward and so we sort of walked out Um, now that was humiliating But it's not shame. And the difference is embarrassment you can laugh about afterwards. I think that's the difference. Embarrassment you can laugh about afterwards. Shame, there's something more indelible that's going on in the core of your soul that you don't want to expose that. You don't want to tell anyone about that. So just to get... Definitive on this, let me tell you a personal story. When I recently came to feel shame, no, I'm not going to tell you. So, people were all going, "Oh, really? Is he going to expose?" But that's the point. As if I'm going to tell you, you know, it's it's shameful. We've all got things in our life that we don't want to have anyone know. So think now, what are those things in our life that We want to keep private, that you don't want anyone to know about. What are the things in our life that we work really hard to keep secret from everyone else? They're the things we're ashamed about. It can be things that we've done. We've done the wrong thing. And you know that feeling of shame when if you've ever gone to confess before someone, and you can just feel that the whole relationship, as soon as they know this, could collapse. That's the feeling of shame going on. It could be things that you haven't done, like you didn't stick up for your wife, or someone that you should have st- stuck up for. You know, th- that's when you feel shame. It can be when things... Have not you haven't done things, but things have been done to you. I know lots of people have grown up and they've just been criticised by their parents. And you feel worthless, inferior, like you have no value. Any of us who have been abused in, in any form, abuse tells us that we that some people think we have no value and no worth. And we feel shame. So it's not things we've done, but it's things that have been done to us that make us feel shame. So these words are very powerful in understanding shame, outsider, naked and dirty. Today, we read a story where Jesus takes an event where shame is bubbling up and he saves the event saves the face of people so that they no longer feel shame, and in that points to why he came from heaven, from God's side, into this world, to remove all of our shame so that we have no more shame, no more shame before God. So let's have a look at that as we dive in. All right, come with me to John chapter 2. Here's a little picture of a Jewish wedding and they have big parties like us. They tend to keep their weddings going for about seven days, a whole week. So you can imagine the expense and it's very easy to run out of wine towards the end of the week with these Jewish weddings. And as we said, Mary's in a panic. She calls upon Jesus. Now, Jesus is her eldest son. So maybe that's a natural thing to say, Jesus, we need help. Fix this. And we see in verse 4, Jesus says, Woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. So, in the panic, Mary seems to have sort of naturally approached Jesus, maybe as the elder son, fix this up. And Jesus takes the opportunity to just slow things down and says, Why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. He says in that that this is not his time for fixing stuff. And it's a little bit sort of mysterious what he means. But what we do see at this point is that he actually does go on to fix this social event, doesn't he? So as we read the rest of the story, we'll see that there are three symbols in this story um, by which he by which the story sort of concentrates on in order to show us that through Jesus fixing this social event, removing the shame there, it is pointing to how he has come. There is an hour and a time where he will fix all shame for people. So there's three symbols. Two of them are in the details of the story. The third one is John, the author, making an observation. So let's have a look at the first one. The first symbol is that there are these six stone water jars in verse 6. And we're told that they're the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. So I understand that's about 100 litres each, roughly. So they are big jars. And there's a picture of some of them. Now, what are these ceremonial jars? It's a Jewish wedding. So... Jewish weddings have a lot of beliefs and things that they think about with God that come as part of the the wedding. And whenever they had events that involved food, they had these jars with water by which you would wash yourself or wash parts of yourself. Now, this is not personal hygiene like mum would say to us. Make sure you wash your hands before you have dinner. Scrub under your nails, floss your teeth. It's not that kind of thing. But there's a whole belief that is going on. Jews believed in God, as we know. They followed the Old Testament. And there are some laws about Jews coming into the temple, particularly priests, where you would have to wash before you could come into the presence of God. Now, this time, first century um, Israel in Jerusalem, there was a temple, but most of the religious Jews believed that the priests in the temple were corrupt, So they thought that the whole temple, which was meant to be a place where you would be clean, get clean and come into God's presence, was just filthy and dirty and corrupted by these priests. And so there's a group called the Pharisees. We've probably all heard of them. And what they would do, they would think, well, given that we can't control the temple and there's all these priests that are corrupt and we also don't control the land of Palestine because the Romans are there, we can show God that we are serious about him by doing our own little washings. And so that's why they make a big deal through the New Testament about washing and you see it around meals and events and food. If you could wash, you were showing to God that you were serious about God, you wanted to have a clean standing before him and you're hoping that God might notice that and come soon and rescue. Here's a quote from Ezra which is he's a guy a couple of hundred years before Jesus but the same situation Romans run the land or pagans run the land and he can see that his people just continue to sin and so he understands that the people of God are too ashamed he says he's too ashamed and disgraced to lift up his face before you because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached to the heavens Because of our sins, we and our kings and our priests have been subjected to the sword and captivity, to pillage and humiliation at the hand of foreign kings as it is today. Hear what he's saying? He understands that the reason they aren't their own bosses and that there's pagans is because of their own sin. They might be in Jerusalem, they might have a temple, but they're too ashamed to lift their face to God. They're full of sin. But now for a brief moment, the Lord has been gracious in leaving us a remnant and giving us a firm place in this sanctuary. So he finishes there by saying, even though all these things are true, he can see that God has left some people trying to be faithful to him. And so it grew up that there was this practice that you would show your faithfulness to God by washing with these jars. So these jars, the first symbol there... Uh, jars that are about acceptance before God. And so to get into this Jewish wedding, you had to show that you were serious about God. That's just sort of how those people thought. For the bridegroom to let you into his wedding, you had to show you were serious about God and do the the cleansing. And it's with these gallons that Jesus... So you can imagine being one of the servants watching this take place how shocking this would be you know what all these jars are about and Jesus in verse 7 tells the servants to fill the jars up with water and they filled them to the brim and he says now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet and the master of the banquet tasted the water which had been turned into wine but he did not realize where it had come from though the servants who had drawn the water knew so that's the first symbol A symbol about acceptance, Jesus uses in this full-on way to save the event. They now have wine. Here's the second symbol. The master of the banquet, so this is the end of verse 9, the master of the banquet calls the bridegroom aside and he says, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. That makes sense, doesn't it? But you have saved the best till now. So the master of the banquet, so he's the the head chef kind of guy. He is tasting this wine, but remember he doesn't know where it's come from. Only the servants do. He tastes this wine. He's baffled because it's better than any of the wine that they've had. And he goes up to the bridegroom and he says this comment. In this, this is our second symbol, we see that Jesus has subbed in, substituted in at this event to be the bridegroom. So it's the bridegroom's responsibility to host to provide the wine, that's why it was natural for the master of the banquet to come up to the bridegroom and say, this wine's outstanding. But Jesus has done this all sort of in the background, but in a way that he, he, he does the role that the bridegroom needs to do, which this particular bridegroom is failing at, at this point, about to bring shame. He subs in, provides the wine, the best wine that is needed, and saves the event. So the first symbol is the ceremonial jars are about our acceptance. The second symbol in this story is that Jesus acts as the host of this event, saving the event and in a way where he actually saves the face of the actual bridegroom. There's a picture of the wine. I You can imagine getting a splinter, having a drink out of that. Here's our master of the banquet. And, oh my goodness! Wow! That's outstanding. Here's the third symbol that we see in this. And this is a symbol that John, the author, as he's telling the story, notices. In verse 11... He says, What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. The symbol is the number seven. John, when you read his gospel, at this point he's doing a bit of counting. He does a lot of counting around this story, and it all has to do with the number seven. And seven is a very interesting number in the Bible. It was the seventh day when God created everything and finished and relaxed and hung out with the people that he had created. So whenever you see seven, sometimes you start thinking, "Ooh, what could this be about? And we notice here that in John, as he tells the story, he starts some counting, does some counting and counts around the number seven. So here's the first one. He says that this is the first of Jesus' signs. The turning of the water into wine is the first of Jesus' signs. So he started counting. As we continue through the Gospel of John, he actually only tells of seven miracles. And in each one, he describes that as a sign. The seventh miracle is the raising of Lazarus from the dead. dead. You've probably heard about that. So from this one, he counts up one, goes all the way up to Lazarus, who died and gets raised again, and that's called that's the seventh, counting with John. And immediately after that, Jesus' death and resurrection is told. So all of these signs, like a sign, it points, it points to something. And given that he counts up seven and then tells this big story about Jesus' death and resurrection, this sign points to that moment. In fact, in John, when he starts talking about Jesus' death and resurrection, it's Jesus who says, this is the hour. This is the hour it has come. And he only says that after the seventh sign. This is the hour that has come for my glorification. So that's another thing he says, the hour and glorification. Here's uh, some of the words from Jesus at the Last Supper. He has a, a big, long conversations with his disciples. And he says, Father, the hour has come. He prays in front of them. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. So that, that's the first part of this symbol. He counts up seven signs this is the first of a sign that points to jesus's death and resurrection the other bit of counting that is going on is you may have noticed at the start of this story so back at verse one of chapter two it says on the third day a wedding took place at cana in galilee now ever since john started talking about jesus in this gospel he has been counting the days. He says, this day, then the next day, then the next day. And he counts days up to the events of talking to Philip and Nathaniel and then says on the third day after that event. Now, it works out if you do the mass, this is day number seven. So this is what John's doing as he tells the story of Jesus. From the very start, he starts counting seven days. And this wedding takes place on the seventh day of Jesus' ministry. I find this very interesting because this is the only time in John's gospel that he even counts a week or gets us to notice the period of a week that takes place. And John had started his gospel with pointing us to the first week of creation, by reminding us that there was darkness and then light, and the light shines in the darkness. And if you know that story, the very first page of the Bible, seven days are counted up. On the seventh day, that's when God finishes all his work, and we see in chapter 2 that there is a wedding. Everything has been created. Everything has been finished, man and woman, Married together, but in a way that God is in their midst and they hang out. It's a luscious garden. They eat, they feast, and they walk with God. You see what's happening? John is drawing our attention to the fact that darkness is turning into light with Jesus and light is culminating in a wedding. That's where it's all pointing to, a wedding where Jesus is the bridegroom. So let me just pull it together so that we can follow and so that I can follow as well. Just like any Jewish wedding, to enter into it, you need to follow the bridegroom's rules and he wants you to be clean, to be accepted. Jesus at this wedding, he takes a wedding as his first sign of seven and he points to the fact that he is the bridegroom that brings the cleaning that we all need so that we can be accepted into this wedding. And he does it in a way that he starts pointing towards his death and resurrection by which he shows he scrubs us clean by his own blood. The end of the Gospel of John is about Jesus dying and shedding his blood so that all of our sin, guilt, and shame is scrubbed clean. And if you look at this, this is how the Romans did their crucifixions. It was all about absolutely shaming the person who was being crucified. More than the pain or in parallel with the intense pain, they constructed the whole crucifixion so that this person and the whole community would know they have no value. It was a public shaming. Absolute no value. They're worthless. And they would hang them on a cross. Most of our depictions of Jesus on the cross don't show the fact that he would have been naked, it is all about public humiliation and shaming. And Jesus takes this wedding as the first opportunity to point to the fact that he will shed blood to scrub clean our shame so that we might be accepted before God. And this is on offer for anyone. As these disciples, they came to understand this sign and they believed in Jesus. Any one of us can have our shame removed, our sin scrubbed clean, simply by trusting that this is what Jesus has done for us. Jesus, in his humiliation, in his shame, he willingly, this is, this is the type of bridegroom Jesus is, He willingly serves everyone so that they can come into the event. He doesn't push anyone aside. He serves everyone so that they might come into the wedding event and have full acceptance. And if Jesus, God, is willing to serve us in this way, for all of us who have Shame and carry shame that changes things. The one before whom it matters the most, our standing, he serves us in a way to remove all of our shame. And in that, if he's going to serve us that way, doesn't he bestow honour on us? He honours us and says, Come in, you're accepted, welcome, be part of this grand wedding. That changes everything for us. It changes our future and it also changes how we feel right now. The Bible tells us that in the future there will be one massive big wedding day where Jesus will accept those who have trusted in him and it will be wonderful. It will be a wonderful, wonderful day. Here's some of my favourite passages in the Bible. Revelation 19 is a group of people who have been cleansed, shouting out, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. We turn up, we have fine linen, we're bright and clean. We have been made pure and acceptable to come in. We won't be turned away. We won't be shamed. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. Also in Revelation 21. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He, the, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. Isn't that just a beautiful line? Every tear will be wiped from our eyes. There'll be no more death, no more mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. That's our future when we believe in the Lord Jesus and any of us are invited right now to that wonderful wedding where you are totally accepted. And all your shame is removed. Other passages of the Bible talk about God. God doesn't just pretend. He actually, through the work of Jesus' blood scrubbing us clean, he forgets. He forgives and forgets. There's no more shame. It also changes our present today. And as I wrap up with this point, I invite... Those who are preparing the Lord's Supper for us to start passing things around. A lot of us can have shame, and we might believe in these things, and yet we know that we still feel it. We still feel outside. We still feel naked, and we still feel dirty believing in this, what it changes for us, for those who do have scenarios where people will remind us, heck, we're all going to Christmas lunch, a lot of us with our families, sometimes that can be all about hanging out with people who just remind you of everything that they don't like about you. You I hope that's not the case for you. It's not that hard with my family, but I know that can be the case. Um, We do get reminded of our shame, even our own self-talk can remind us of our shame but this story here has told us that in Jesus there is no more shame before God we have complete acceptance and so we kind of do life now in a way where shame no longer controls us it's believing in this that we know that we are clean we are fine bright we are dressed to enter into this wedding And we need to remind ourselves of that because sometimes people remind us, as I say, sometimes even our bodies, just the feelings that we have, can get the better of us. We, you almost, someone might say something and almost like automation. Do you feel that? You suddenly just feel shame. And that's why the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was to die, did a banquet he gave us this meal where he said, you need to, until I come back, keep having this feast together. Keep doing this feast, knowing that you have been made clean and that when I come back, you will be welcomed into my kingdom. And we need to do this, the Lord's Supper. This is what we're doing in church right now. It's where, because we're a big group, We take a little bit of bread and wine and it's symbolising a meal. But what's going on is that this is a meal that we do together that Jesus himself gave us. So that when we have this meal together, we're not just popping stuff down into our throat, but we are remembering that Jesus is the one that gave us this because it tells the true story of who we are before God and our destiny that we will be accepted. This is a powerful thing to do. We need to train our bodies with this because sometimes we feel the shame overwhelms us but here we partake in the meal that Jesus told us to keep doing and keep rehearsing to train our hearts, our minds, our bodies that it is true. We have been scrubbed clean by the blood of Jesus and there is no more shame. So if you do believe in the Lord Jesus, I invite you to take this cup and bread and spend a moment thinking about those areas of your life that are shameful, that you, that we want to keep secret and private and work hard at that. And bring it to the Lord Jesus. How safe is it for us to confess before the one who absolutely shamed himself, put himself in the position of being disgraced in order to take the shamed people and give them honour? That makes it very safe for us to confess before him. And for those of us who are still thinking about these... um, these things Um, consider what has been said today, what Jesus has shown us that is on offer for you too wouldn't it be just wonderful to be accepted to no longer feel vulnerable and naked to no longer be dirty, feel contaminated or contagious Jesus His blood is the best wine. It saves the event of our life and you can be welcomed into his kingdom. All you have to do is just pray and say, Lord, please scrub me clean. As the final elements get passed out down here, I'll pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we come to you now knowing that if, we, if the spotlight were shined on us full bright, we would be dirty. It would not be pretty. We would be vulnerable because we are naked. We would not belong in your holy presence. But Lord, how merciful you have been that you came into our world and you absorbed all our guilt, our sin and our shame to serve us in order that we might be honoured that you bring us in to that great wedding banquet. And now, Lord, as we eat and drink together, we remember that this is what is most true about our lives, despite our feelings, despite what other people say. This is what is most true about our lives and our destiny. Let us eat and drink together.
0: Amen.